Acts chapter 2. We are still talking about the day of Pentecost. We've been talking about the day of Pentecost for weeks. And uh, we're wrapping up Acts chapter 2 today. Are we? No, we're not. We're not wrapping up. We're almost wrapping up. We're going to verse 41. I don't know what I'm preaching. We're going to verse 41. We're talking about the truth about Jesus. We find ourselves in the middle of the Apostle Peter giving an explanation to the crowds that were gathered about what they saw happening and heard happening when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. So we'll eventually work ourselves all the way to verse 41 from verse 24. But to start, we'll just read verses 21 through 24. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. So it says in Acts 2, starting in verse 21, the Apostle Peter speaking, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the holy word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word that is before us and the good news that is here. We pray for those amongst us who are struggling with the weight of sin and the reality of that, enslavement to sin, the power working in their lives and the way that that brings destruction. We ask that today there would come to those lives deliverance. We pray for those in our body who are suffering, for whom death feels real in this moment. We pray your comfort, your strength, your healing, your deliverance. We thank you ultimately, Jesus, that you are victorious over all sin and over death, over the enemy and the grave. And we ask today that your victory would be made evident to us through the preaching of your word. Please help us to hear your word. Please help us to rejoice in your word. And I humble myself before your church and before you. I confess my inadequacy. I confess my fear and inabilities. I ask that you would please, for your own glory and for the good of these people whom I love, anoint me to teach and preach in a way that's humble and faithful and helpful and makes clear the victory of Jesus, that we might live it out and it would be good. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how do we get to this place where Peter finds himself before a huge crowd in Jerusalem saying these things about Jesus, that Jesus was attested to by God through miracles, that he was nailed to the cross by these people that were present listening, and that he rose from the dead because he could not be held by the grave. How do we get to this point where Peter is preaching this? Well, we studied the book of Matthew last time before we got in the book of Acts, and we saw there that indeed Christ was crucified, and the Bible says for our sins to pay the price for our sins, that he was in the grave for three days, and then he rose from the dead. And by doing so, he defeated death, he defeated the grave, and Satan, our enemy, and has through the forgiveness of sin given us brand new life. And that's why we're here, and that's why Peter is there explaining it. 
Jesus gave his followers not only new life and not only hope and not only this victory, but he gave them purpose. You'll remember at the very end of the book of Matthew, he told them that they should go to all the nations and preach the gospel, telling the whole world what Jesus has taught us, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus would be with them always as they, we, his people, lived out his purposes in this world. So he gave them forgiveness, he gave them hope, he gave them victory, and he gave them and has given us purpose. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Purpose for our lives. But then Jesus did an interesting thing as we got to the book of Acts. He said to them, after saying to them, go, he said, but don't go yet. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses. So he said, go, but don't go yet. There's a key ingredient that you need to live out my purposes in your life. So wait for it. So in Acts chapter 1, we find the disciples waiting for it. In Acts chapter 2, as we've been studying for several weeks now, the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. The Spirit falls upon the early church as they're gathered in a prayer meeting, and creepy, awesome stuff happens. There's something like a violent wind that shakes the room. There's something like fire flaming over their heads. And they begin to speak in other tongues, languages that they did not previously know. And people saw these things and heard these things. It was quite a commotion. And some people said, this is, this is silly. What are these guys drunk? And some people said, this is interesting. What does this mean? So there were scoffers and seekers. They all saw and heard the same thing that God was doing amongst his people. Some scoffed and some sought. Some dismissed it and some wanted to know more about it. And so Peter now is addressing both groups of people. He's explaining to them what happened. He started in the text that we looked at a couple weeks ago by saying, look, this is nothing new. This is something that Joel the prophet in your scriptures, the Old Testament, spoke about hundreds of years ago. That one day God would pour out his spirit on his people and that people would dream dreams and see visions and prophesy and God would move in and through his people in the world to accomplish his purposes in a new and powerful way. And Peter says, this is what you're witnessing. This is happening in your midst. And it involves some of those interesting things that we've studied. Like last week, we talked about the gift of tongues, that creepy, awesome thing. And the week before that, we talked about dreams and visions and prophetic insight and all that creepy Christian stuff. Because Peter talked about it. But now Peter brings it right back down to earth. He brings it right to the main point, the big picture, the most important thing, what it's all about. And he says again in verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter is finishing up the second half of his sermon here, and that's his main theme. He's talking about the fact that everyone now in this age, since Christ came and died and rose from the dead, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter takes for himself three points to try to illustrate this or prove this to his audience that was there, both scoffers and seekers. And what he's talking about, again, is how then, 
this happens. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what does that mean? Someone just says, hey, Lord, they're saved? Or is there something more specific to it? He'll land it at the end of his little sermon in verse 38, where he'll say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So his theme was, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. His application was, or, or how you apply that is, you repent of your sins, you're baptized, declaring your allegiance to Jesus, you have forgiveness of sins, and God fills you with his spirit, and your life is different. For those of us who have been Christians for some time, that might seem elementary, and we understand that. But we need to think about, if we put ourselves inside the text, the way that his Jewish audience heard that this morning. Peter's talking about that that morning. Peter's talking about being saved. What was their concept from the Old Testament about being saved, or said in a different way, having a right standing with God? How did they understand that? And how is what Peter is telling them different? Here's the way that they understood that. They understood that to have a right standing with God, they had to obey God's rules. The Old Testament is many things, but to a large part, it is a book of God's rules, God's law, it's called. And by revealing his standard and his law, God reveals himself to be holy or other, not like us, but he's different. He's holy, he's other, he's righteous, he's without sin, he's without error, he's perfect. And God reveals himself as being that to infinite, or excuse me, finite humanity by saying, look, here's a way that I would have people live in this world. And he talks about our sexuality. He talks about our generosity. He talks about forgiveness. He talks about kindness. He talks about civil government. He talks about all these things that help his people understand who he is and his holiness. And then he gives them an if-then paradigm by which they were meant to exist. Okay? If you obey my law, then you will be blessed. If you do everything that I commanded you, then you will be in right standing with me. If you do not, then you will be cursed, God says explicitly. If you do not obey all my commandments, then you will not have right standing with me. If you obey my commandments, then it will go well with you, he says to Israel. If you do not, then it will not, he tells them explicitly. This is called being under the law. They lived in an if-then paradigm as it pertained to obeying the rules that God gave them. Living under the law. If-then. Romans gives us some New Testament thoughts about this and says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, there's that phrase, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Pause right there for a minute. The whole world be held accountable to God. So God, in essence, through the Old Testament, through the Bible, the whole of it, he reveals himself to the entire world and his righteous standards so that nobody gets to say in the end, I didn't know. You know how like if you get pulled over and you're like going 65 in a 25 zone, you're like, dude, I didn't know it's 25 zone. They're like, ignorance is no excuse. Here's a ticket. (laughs) 
Ignorance is no excuse. God has sufficiently revealed himself in his word, his righteousness, and his righteous standard, and his will for humanity, so that ultimately on the day of judgment, that's what we're talking about, on the day of judgment, we are without excuse. God has revealed who he is, who we are, and what he expects of us. So he puts us under the law then, because he expects us to obey it. It's heavy. It's meant to be heavy. That's meant to be heavy. Is it heavy? Okay, are you paying attention? Because I'll get crazy if you're not. You paying attention? Okay, good. Verse 20 then says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See that difficulty there? God has given his law, he's given a standard, he said we are to obey it, but the word reveals to us that none of us are going to hit the mark. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who are good, no, not one, it says in the preceding verses. And ultimately, for those who are under the law, none of us will ever be declared right and in right standing with God through our obedience to the law. It's not possible because we can't attain to God's standard. Nobody in the end will hold up their life against the Bible and say, look, God, I pretty much killed it, dude. I was like killing it. I did all your stuff. He says that's, that's not the way that it works because his law is according to his righteousness and his perfection. So then it says, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. And that's part of the purpose of God giving us his law. It's like a mirror that we look into and we realize, wow, I'm, I'm not like God. God is other than me. God is holy. I'm not holy. And I have fallen short of his glory and his expectations and his goodness and his will. So those who are under the law... Again, we're talking about how the people Peter was speaking to would have heard these things. Those who were under the law begin to realize that the law only always ever showed them to be bad. The law only ever always showed them how far short they would fall. The law reveals our sinfulness and we find ourselves unable to earn a right standing with God. In the if-then paradigm, becomes a big bummer. So Galatians 2 then says, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. And Paul actually did say at one point, he's like, I was pretty epic at keeping the law, right? He says that at one point. I, I kind of killed it, but I found out no matter how good I did or no matter how hard I tried, it ultimately condemned me. It wasn't up to God's standard. So then it says somewhere, Those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. No one can be made right with God through the if-then paradigm of God's law. And like the hard news is God doesn't grade on a curve. Right? It says... Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in the law. First John will say, if you stumble in one area of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. That doesn't seem fair to us. It's not really maybe fair, but this whole thing isn't about fairness. Right? We love teachers who graded on a curve. We love teachers who graded on a curve. Because you just had to suck as much as everyone else and you were killing it. 
Right? Like, guys, if we're all stupid and we all suck and we all get 60s, that's the new way. 60s is the new way. It doesn't work that way with God. Because of his righteousness, his standard remains perfection. And so, honestly, we're bummed. And so Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. Someone say, thank you, God. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. And that's what Peter is trying to convey to his audience, both scoffers and seekers who are looking and saying, what is this? God's spirit coming upon God's church, this whole thing about Jesus, and what does it mean? Peter is telling them that God has provided for them a new and better covenant. That God is offering to them through Jesus to come out from under the burden of the law and live under grace. That it will no longer be about what they do or fail to do, but it is about what Jesus has done and succeeded to do and who he is. Peter is trying to offer them wonderful news about faith through Jesus as opposed to trying to earn our own standing before God. And so, and and trying to prove this to them that Jesus is a way, he gives them three points. His first point is that Jesus was a promised Messiah from God that they expected. We see it again, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourself know. So his first point to them was, listen, this Jesus guy that you're wondering about, that you experience a bit of, God is testifying to his identity as his only unique son and the expected Messiah by the miracles that he did. For who else ever calmed the storm, the wind, and the waves with a word? Who else ever walked on water? Who else ever raised Lazarus and the little girl from the dead? Who else fed the 5,000 with nothing? Jesus is the promised Savior of the world, and we know because of his miraculous life and his miraculous works. And then his second point is that Jesus was crucified and died according to God's loving plan. Verse 23, he says, This man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, Peter's one of those preachers that doesn't pull any punches. He's laying it straight at their feet. He's like, this Jesus is the Messiah. It was kind of proven by the fact that God did all of these incredible miracles through him. And then you kind of like nailed him to the cross. He says something interesting. He said that it was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. It wasn't plan B. It's not that God was trying to save the world and then things got messy and kind of slipped out of control. And he's like, you know what? Let's just make like this cross thing the whole game. Okay, hurry, let's do it. It wasn't a plan B. God always planned that after showing himself, revealing himself through the law, and then revealing to us something about ourselves through the law that we don't measure up to God's standards and we're not worthy, he would provide for himself a sacrifice that would satisfy 
his standard, his requirements, and his wrath. And he would do so because of love. It wasn't a plan B. It was always God's plan that he would move us out from under the law and into living under grace through his own son. It was a predetermined plan. And yet they have some culpability for what happened there. I want you to see the tension for those of you that are theologically minded. There's a theological tension in the Bible that's hard to navigate. It is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The Bible says, without apology, that God is sovereign over all things actual and possible. God is always and forever in control. The Bible also says that humanity is responsible for all of our choices all the time. And in our finite minds, we have a difficult time navigating the tension between God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. It seems as though those two things are in juxtaposition to one another or that they clash. If God is in control of all things, then how am I responsible for my own bad decisions? Wasn't God controlling all those things in some way? And it's right about there that our minds go... And the reality of scripture is that God is sovereign and we, humanity, are responsible for our own choices. And that those two, as much as it's a mystery, work in harmony. And God's sovereignty never serves in scripture to mitigate man's responsibility. In other words, man doesn't get to make bad decisions and say, well, it's just God being in control. God's sovereignty never serves to mitigate man's responsibility. And man's responsibility never serves to diminish God's sovereignty. So God's not going to say in the end, well, Brett, he screwed the whole thing up for me. There was like nothing I could do. I will be responsible for my bad decisions before God, and God will maintain his sovereignty through all history. It's a bit of a mystery, but it's a real theological tension. And he says, this is what God wanted to do. God was providing in the Messiah a Savior for the whole world. It was always his plan that he would be sacrificed for our sins, but you guys nailed him to the cross. Now, we're not those guys. We didn't hold a hammer. We didn't feel the flesh and pound into the wood. But in some ways, Christ died for our sins. Some ways we have a responsibility. It was according to God's plan and foreknowledge because he loves us, he wanted to provide a way for us. But we have to accept responsibility that Christ had to die because our sins are so great. And our sins begged forgiveness. And so God supplied and God did so because of his love. It wasn't the Romans that forced it. It wasn't the Jews that forced it. It wasn't our sin that forced it. God provided Christ for us because he loves us. If you get nothing else out of today, know that you are loved by God and Christ was given for you. And then Peter's last point is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead according to God's power and plan. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
This is another way that he's trying to convince his original audience who lived under the law in the if-then paradigm that Jesus really was the one who brings the new covenant and would deliver them from that. Listen, tested to by God through miracles, died on the cross, and you're culpable in that, but it was God's plan. But God raised him from the dead, and even the grave could not hold him. He's trying to draw them into the truth of Jesus that he's greater than anything else, and he's the true savior of the world. And I want you to notice that when Peter does that, he appeals to scripture. In the next few verses, he's going to quote from Psalm 16. Any preacher worth their salt appeals to scripture when trying to prove a point. And Peter appeals to scripture when talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Again, telling them this is not a new thing. This is not a plan B. This is not a fluke. This was not a fainting and reviving. This is God's plan for the Messiah. So he quotes now in the next few verses from a Psalm of David, Psalm 16. And he says, starting here in verse 25, David said about him, about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Now listen to verse 27. It's interesting. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you fill me with joy in your presence. So speaking to his Jewish audience and trying to prove that Jesus is a Messiah who's inviting them into a better way than the if-then paradigm of the law, he says he was attested to by miracles so you could believe his identity. He died on the cross because God loves you, and he was resurrected from the dead. And so that's proof positive of his uniqueness as a Savior. And he says, look at your own scriptures. And then verse 27, again, is weird. All of a sudden, David says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, but you will not let your Holy One see decay. They probably read over that a thousand times as Israelites. But look what Peter explains to them in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. So David had said in that Psalm 16, my body's not going to decay. In the grave, I won't be abandoned to the realm of the dead. Peter says, but his tomb is right over there. If we want to exhume it, there's David's body. He actually did decay in the grave. He is in the realm of the dead. Verse 30, he says, but he was a prophet. He explains now and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Speaking about Jesus. Seeing what was to come, verse 31, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear right now. So Peter says, your own scriptures testify to the fact that the Messiah would be risen from the dead. It's not plan B, this is plan A. God is doing this because of his love for you. And it shows you that Jesus is the name above all names. For there was no one else in history whom the death, whom the grave and death could not hold but Jesus. And he says, and now he's exalted. And what you're seeing here is the work of Jesus in your midst. I love that Peter appeals to scripture. And then he also does something. He says, you guys were eyewitnesses to this. 
that was a really important fact for his original audience, both scoffers and seekers, because you remember that Jesus was buried in a tomb just outside the walls of Jerusalem. So when Peter preaches a resurrected Jesus, and he says to you, them, you guys were eyewitnesses, Jesus had been there after he was resurrected from the dead. Remember, he was still on earth for 40 days before he ascended. And anybody who was doubting what he said at that time could go to the tomb and look and say, no, he's not here. The tomb is empty. They could go to David's tomb and say, yeah, that prophecy wasn't about David. He's still in the tomb. But Jesus's tomb is empty. He is risen. He's not here. Eyewitnesses. Now, we aren't eyewitnesses are we? But we are witnesses. The truth of the empty tomb is evidence in the transformation in our lives that we have received the forgiveness of sins and we know it. That we have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That we used to live under the heavy weight of the if then and what felt like a curse from God and we have been brought into sonship sons and daughters of God, the beloved of God, who receive forgiveness and are known by God and are now delivered from the power of sin and so ultimately from the power of the grave. That's why sometimes preachers say, can I get a witness? Because it's that kind of witness. We have been saved. We have been transformed. We belong to him. And it's as powerful testimony in our world as the empty tomb was in Jerusalem. That's why, brothers and sisters, we've been talking about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming upon the church that they would receive power to be his witnesses. Can I call us to not be afraid to be witnesses for Jesus Christ? I know what it's like. I I know the intimidation. I know that our culture would try to intimidate us. I know that the workplace intimidates us. I know that our family members intimidate us. I know my own pride intimidates me. But at some point, we've got to rise up by the power of the Holy Spirit and just witness to the fact that I have been forgiven, that my life has been bought with a price, and I am brand new, that I am delivered from shame and guilt, and I belong to God, and I have eternal life. That's witness. That's the truth that we have. Dude, it's too good to keep under wraps. It's too good to keep under wraps. Don't roll the stone back in front of the tomb. Let the empty tomb speak through your life. Romans 1 says about Jesus and the resurrection, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's the ultimate display of power, Christ's resurrection from the dead. The Bible says that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is alive and working in the life of the believer. Man, we've got to lay hold of that power for the good of our community, for those whom we love, for the glory of Christ. We've got to lay hold of that power. You know, in in the Jewish mind, in the audience that was there, David was like a big deal. King David was like a big deal. You know what I mean? Like David was the warrior king and David took on Goliath and he took on the Philistines and he was a great king of Israel and all this awesome stuff. And part of Peter's point is that one greater than David has come. David might have defeated the lion and the Philistines and all these other things, but Jesus has defeated and broken the power of sin. 
David might have cut off the head of Goliath, but Jesus has defeated the power of the grave. Through the cross, Jesus has broken the power of sin. Think about the power of sin in our lives. Think about how destructive sin is in our world, in our own lives, in our relationships. Think about the way that we were ruled by sin before we came to Jesus. Even though we knew what we were doing was destroying us, we went in that way. And even today, the power of sin. Man, how many of you can testify to the fact that there's something in your life and you're like, man, I'll I'll, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. And you find yourself doing that again. You say, I hate this. I never want to do this. I hate this. I'll never do this again. And three days later, you find yourself doing the same thing. Man, there is a real power to sin, but we need to hear with the ears of faith because scripture says it, that Jesus has broken the power of sin. Romans chapter six, he's broken the power of sin. So we are no longer slaves to sin. So we need to learn with the help of the Holy Spirit and faith in scripture to learn to walk in victory for Jesus has broken the power of sin. And let's not flirt with sin. Man, sin destroys. And what sin does is lead to death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death or what sin earns us is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want you to see the connection between death and sin because Jesus defeated sin and death and they're connected. We were made to live, not to die. We were created by God to live. But God gave us an if-then paradigm. If you obey me, then you will live in the garden in my presence. If you do not obey me, then you will die. And humanity rebelled. And so death entered into a realm that was meant for life and for beauty. And the effects of death reverberate in our world. Man, we live like in a culture right now that can't figure out how to deal with kids going to school and shooting each other. This is like the scent of death in our nation, in our world, in our culture. And however we try to frame it and whatever we try to make it about and however we try to legislate it, listen, all death is the result of rebellion against God. And humanity reaps what it sows. We are living in a world that is racked with the effects of sin and death. This is why we repent of sin and go toward God and repeatedly repent of sin because sin brings death and all that reeks of it. And Jesus came to deliver us from the power of sin and the ultimate effect of it that is death. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 about a future hope, Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is coming a day where death will be swallowed up by the victory of Jesus. But we realize that we live in the tension of the in-between. When Christ has come, died, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and Christ is coming again. 
And for those who put their faith in Christ, the power of sin is broken, and we are ultimately delivered from the grave and from death and all that stinks like death, but we're waiting for Jesus to return for the day when there will be the great reversal and the sting of death will be removed. Once and for all, the sting of death and everything that reeks of it in our world. Because Jesus is greater than death. And he's given us the victory. But it's not like we just like hold on like on some crazy roller coaster ride until Jesus comes back and like, let's just hide out and hold on. And then when he comes back, it'll be okay. He's given us a victory now. His spirit lives in us now. He's given us his word now. He's alive and working in us and through us now. You are delivered from the domain of darkness and delivered from the power of sin now. You are a beloved daughter, a beloved son of God now. His spirit is alive at work in you. Let's lay hold of that for the glory of Jesus that he might be known in the world as witnesses for the good of our community, our nation, and our world. Let's lay hold of that and the purpose that's in that. And what Peter hoped they would get from his little sermon here is that the love of God was bigger than their own sin, than any sin. I mean, he's talking to the dudes that nailed Jesus to the cross. And he's offering forgiveness to them. Remember Jesus, when he was on the cross, what he said? Father, forgive them. Man, someone throws like the smallest stone at my reputation. I'm like, God, kill him. Hurts me in the slightest way. I'm like, Mom, kill him. Jesus was mocked, spit on, the flesh ripped from his back, the thorns pressed into his skull, nailed to the cross, naked for all to see. And he says, Father, forgive them. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. And if God's forgiveness could be extended to them, God's forgiveness can be extended to me and to you. There is no sin we have committed that is bigger than the love of God. And so they asked when they heard all this, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, bros, what should we do? It actually says brothers, but I like bros. Brothers, what should we do? And he just showed them that Jesus was the Messiah, attested to by miracles, that he died on the cross according to God's plan, but they had culpability in that, and that he was resurrected from the dead, that he was more powerful than the power of sin and the power of the grave. And they said, what should we do? And Peter lands a plane for them and says explicitly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your kids and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. He said to them, repent. To repent is to hang a U-turn. It's to confess that we've been going our way, but it's time to go God's way. Whatever their intentions were, however much they tried to keep the law, Peter said to them, repent. The way to forgiveness of sins is to recognize to confess, to confront the idea that our sins are actually wrong before God and should be turned from. That's what it is to repent. It's to turn from and turn to. It's a U-turn, to turn to God. 
And then baptism is a symbol of a new allegiance that we are now allegiant to Jesus Christ as king, that he is now our king. So to repent is to say, okay, I'm, I'm turning from my sin. I've been wrong to God. He is right. Putting my faith in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. And I am identifying with his work and making him my king. To be baptized is a picture of the work of Jesus, of the forgiveness of sins, and to declare in a dark, dark world that we have a new, better, true king in Jesus. And then we receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then David's little psalm that we read becomes true of us. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. Therefore, I will not be shaken. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. I will also rest in hope. He'll not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor let me see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. That is the hope for the believer. And so, Peter just offers it to them. Verses 40 and 41 is where we end. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Obviously, Peter didn't mean that they could save themselves, literally, right? Turn from this wicked generation. Put your faith in Jesus. He just explained that. Verse 41. And those who accepted his message and were baptized, oh, excuse me, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Pentecost came, Peter preached, 3,000 people got saved and baptized. Ah, man, I wish the Lord would do that next week at Easter. But what about you right now? It says, to as many as accepted this message. Will you accept this message of Jesus Christ? It's a hard message. There's an edge to it. It's a beautiful message. There's glory to it. And it's because God loves you that he gave his son for you. If you've never accepted that message, today is a day in your heart you could just express to God somehow that you're putting faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. He will forgive you of your sins. We'll have a baptism as a church in a few weeks after Easter. Get baptized to declare your new allegiance and show the world what Jesus has done for you. God will fill you with his spirit today and give you new life and purpose. You've already done that and you're a Christian. I'm calling on us, myself included, to live out the beauty of this message. Sin is no longer our master. Death does not have the final word. We have new life, power, and hope. One day, we'll see our little girls because Christ is risen. Thank you, God, for these great and glorious truths and your mercy toward us that is represented by them. Pray for anyone today that doesn't know you, that they'd repent of their sins, put their faith in you, be forgiven, be saved, and have new life, and that you'd fill them with your spirit today and with joy. Pray for those of us, again, in the body who are suffering in all sorts of ways. Remind us today that you are victorious over the grave. That death and illness do not have the final word. But one day, through faith in you, we will be resurrected in glory for all of eternity. And that you're present with us now. 
And we read the words of David that in your presence there is fullness of joy. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation, God. Bring us joy in deep, dark places. Bring us joy in our daily lives that we might be faithful witnesses for Christ and what he's done for us. Let's celebrate communion together today. As we do so, we remember the cross of Christ, this great love, his death and his resurrection. We proclaim that cross and that work until he comes again. Come forward today, take communion, do it in an attitude of celebration and reverence and joy. And let's continue to just be a church that prays and asks God to have his way in our midst and our community.